Welcome to our Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast. I'm Melissa Hamilton, your host, and I'm all about supporting female leaders to be incredibly intentional in their careers. And today, I'm super excited to have Dale Stevens join me. Dale, wonderful to have you here on the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So let me share your bio first so people know who I'm talking to, and then we will get into this conversation. So Dale has a 30-year career in technology. She loves solving big problems and enabling potential. Dale is the executive for cloud data and shared technology at Telstra and has previously been the chief data officer at AGL Energy, divisional CIO and other roles at National Australia Bank, and as an IT consultant with PwC working all over the world, helping businesses transform through the adoption of new technologies. Dale is the previous board chair at RoboGales Global, and an ambassador at Girl Geek Academy, both being global organisations aimed at encouraging women to participate in STEM. Dale's work has been recognised with multiple industry and professional awards, including being named in the Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence, and this year being awarded an Order of Australia Medal in the Queen's Birthday Honours for her services to information technology and to women. Dale, is it true that you met the Queen? It is true that I met the Queen. I heard that. I saw that back in 2018 you were asked to meet the yep. Queen. Um, tell me about that. Uh, it was so surreal. Uh, but I did a bunch of work with what was called the Queen's Young Leaders Program. And so that was a program that ran for five years, selecting change makers, young leaders from around the Commonwealth that were leading change in their communities. And so 60 people each year, aged 18 to 29, from around the Commonwealth were selected. They got a whole lot of mentoring, and I was a mentor in that program. Um, they went to the UK and um, did, you know, got a whole lot of education and development, and then they went off to Buckingham Palace and got their award. So I was a mentor in that program for a while. And I remember the very first mentee that I was assigned was a young woman from Lesotho in Southern Africa. And she had not seen a computer until she was 19. And by her mid twenties, she was doing a PhD in computer science. She'd developed an app that was helping rural women with their health and management. She had a, a, a not-for-profit of her own that was scholarship funds for getting um, young girls out of rural areas into um, big private schools in the cities. And I was like, what am I, what? <laughs> How is this going to work? This person does not need my help. But it turned out she was just a young person in her early 20s that was just trying to navigate what it means to work in big companies or what it means, like, not like brilliant, but just normal problems that I could actually help with because I have a lot. Amazing. Um, so, yeah, so I was mentoring in that program for a few years and then they invited me to go and be a guest lecturer and, um in the bit that where they went to the UK and they gave me you'd think Cambridge University would be super organized but it was quite random it was like here's a topic you work it out um and so I called some friends and we worked out that you know the experience that I'd had over nearly 30 years in working in really big organizations and, you know and thinking like when I you know my team at the moment is 1500 people like you just think at a different kind of scale and so for these people that had small startups and early in their career, how do you teach what you learn over 20, 30 years? And so I had to, you know, like when you teach someone to drive a car, you have to work out how to break that down. And so that's what I taught. And then they all went off to get their award from the Queen and I just rode their coattails to get there. But I did get that invitation for all of that effort that I'd put into helping that program along the way. And then, Fantastic. yeah. Fantastic. If you can break down for me how to teach someone to drive a car, I'd love that. I've got a 17-year-old hasn't got his learners yet. I'm happy about that for now. Terrifying, absolutely terrifying. <laughs> and and I will say she's actually quite a good driver, but it is still terrifying. <laughs> so, Dale, for people in the audience who haven't had the chance to meet before, I mean, you and I met about four years ago now, but I would just love for the audience to hear your story. So let's go right back to the beginning. We've got some time. Okay, so right back to the beginning, I grew up in Ballarat. So um, Ballarat is, I feel like I put on a Ballarat accent when I say that. I grew up in Ballarat. Um, Ballarat's about an hour and a half drive from Melbourne, so um, a big kind of country town. 
Uh, I grew up there. I went to university there, um, played a lot of basketball there, always dreamed of playing basketball for Australia, but then not at all, nowhere near it. Um, uh, but I did a business degree. And so my um, I would not say I did a business degree particularly well. I did a business degree, um, but the because I just did like it wasn't my passion, um, and so I kind of just scraped through. Um, and then I got a graduate role with a PC manufacturer, computer manufacturer, and it was moving from Ballarat to Sydney to take up this graduate position. Um, never been to Sydney, didn't know anyone, so I was super scared, but it was um, still pretty exciting. Yeah. Uh, and then, so in that, you know, it was Australia's only computer manufacturer at the time, first day on the job in a factory building computers. It was, if anyone can remember, back at a time when um, computers got to a price point that made it realistic for everyone to have a computer at home by themselves. Absolutely. So, um, huge demand. So this company kind of blew up really quickly. So, um, uh, so that was it. So it was, you know, building computers, fixing computers, going out to people's homes and fixing their computers, selling computers. Um, and it was all kind of like, it was super exciting. It was because it was around the technology. It was changing really fast. Um, everyone was able to access it. And I kind of just fell in love with the idea of technology and people coming together and the potential that that created. Mm. Um, and that has really stuck as my, you know, that first job, it's kind of really stuck as kind of my purpose and the thing I look for when I'm, you know, looking at roles and looking at the things that I want to do. You know, if I wasn't particularly, you know, I passed, but not great in my business degree, you know, it's because I wasn't really passionate about it. And this, you know, this connection of technology and people is the thing that I am really passionate about. And that is, through every job that I've had since. Um, so after, after that role I went, I did try to be an accountant for a little while. I moved to um, CSR Limited, big big corporate yeah. in, based in Sydney. Um, went to CSR Limited in their accounting teams, but I was always the accountant that was working with the IT team to make things, make things work. And so we did a big, that, that um, CSR did a big SAP implementation, if everyone, everyone's probably used some form of one of those. I remember, big, I remember everyone doing SAP implementation. <laughs> one of those big, one of those big ERP systems. So the, um, so CSR implemented that. I got to be a part of that, that big program. And way back then, if you knew a little bit about SAP, you knew a lot. And it was time for me to move from Sydney back to Melbourne and, um, uh, so I got a role with um, Pricewaterhouse. It was just Pricewaterhouse at the time. Wait, okay. I um, got a role with Pricewaterhouse as an SAP consultant. And so that was then that, you know, going around to lots of different organisations, lots of different industries, you know, understanding their needs, implementing SAP, um, you know, technologies to be able to help them achieve what they needed to achieve. So that, you know, to me it was never just uh, go and implement this, this technology that someone's purchased. It was really trying to make it all work with what that organisation needed and how this technology worked and how you got the best out of everyone. Um, and in that role, um, Pricewaterhouse, PricewaterhouseCoopers, and that was bought by IBM, all of that different things happening around me. I was still this consultant that ended up, you know, it was awesome. I got to travel the world. I worked in all around Australia. I worked in Hong Kong and Germany and Sweden and massive program in Sweden um, that went for a number of years that was kind of based in Sweden, but they were implementing all around the world. So, you know, that, that was awesome. You know, like a career in technology really can take you around the world. And then came back to Australia and um, National Australia Bank was had a big program underway. So I was sent down there and then I just ended up staying there for 14 years. Um, but that was awesome. Like NAB is a big organisation. There was lots of opportunities. Technology plays a really big role in financial services. So in the first 10-ish years, I had a kind of different role every year, um, moving from, you know, that what the SAP space where I'd started, then, you know, I kind of thought that if I was going to have a career at NAB rather than a career at SAP, then I needed to learn how banking worked. So moved into the more the technology teams that were more associated with the frontline banking. Mm -hmm. um, 
then then I was I went on maternity leave and came back at a time when digital was really taking off. So internet banking was becoming the largest branch of the bank and mobile apps were first being launched. I was like, I don't understand any of that, but only way to find out is to jump into the middle of it. So I got a role in that um that that uh that space. Um then and I and I distinctly remember that um a job interview for that role where the manager was saying, Dale, uh, this team is expecting a real expert in digital technologies and that's clearly not you, so why are you the right person for the role? Um, and I answered the question, I got the job, so I must have answered the question right. But what I was saying in that was that team, you know, digital was quite was small compared to now but big for then. There was like over 200 experts in that team. I'm like, you don't need another expert. You need someone that's going to, you know, help bring that team together and take them, you know, like get the, everyone else in the organisation realising that internet banking is the largest branch in the bank and we need to invest in these mobile apps and stuff. So, Was that the job, Dale? I remember um, there was an article, I think it was I think it was earlier this year in the Fin Review, that called you out as one of the um, women to watch. It was how taking risks helped you reach the top job. Was this the job where you put in the worst job application in history or is that a different job? No, it wasn't. There's more. There's more. Um, so it was actually my next job was the worst, world's worst job application. Um, so uh, after doing digital for a while, a role came up that was a head of technology role. So that was, you know, it wasn't on the technology leadership, but it was a big step in leadership from the kind of roles that I'd been doing from then uh, around that time, up until then. And um, it was, so I'd done... You know, I had this lot like history in SAP um, and in, you know, a business background and all of the like kind of enterprise, you know, HR, finance, risk, all of those kind of things that the SAP system covered at NAB. Um, and then I went off and did all of these other roles in technology that faced into the banking and faced into digital and all of that kind of stuff. And then this head of technology role came up that was in that SAP finance SAP finance kind of like looking after all the technology that faced into that part of the business and it was like you know now I look at it and go well, that's actually perfect for me if I'm going to take a big step in leadership then doing it in a space that I know really well yes. is a really good way to go obviously now I could have maybe said that in my job application but what I did say was um here's all the reasons why I'm not the right person for this role well <laughs> Who's you know it's like I have a young family. My husband was, he was a chef back then, so he works crazy hours. I cannot be the person that's on call 24-7 when you have yes. um, when you have incidents and everything else. And all of the things that I'd seen or thought I'd seen as being a requirement for being a leader in technology mm-hmm. and me being, um, you know, having a really young family, I thought, like, I just thought that I couldn't, I couldn't juggle those things. And so hiring the, th- the thing I love about that, Dale, is so many people, and, and we know it, we see all the stats on this, but so many people stop at the point of talking themselves out of it. So they don't, I mean, at least what you did is you submitted <laughs> something and tried to talk <laughs> other people out of it, but you no, at least submitted yeah. something. So tell me about the hiring manager because I think that's... So a- then, yeah, so then the hiring manager called and went, are you serious? That's the worst job application I've ever seen. I'm like, yeah, but they're all valid points. He's like... His name is Brian Pollard and he gave me a lot of great advice over the years. Um, and he he said, but Dale, if you're the right person for the role, we will work those things out. And so then I did like get get my head around that, okay, sure, NAB, NAB and a lot of organisations now. Telstra certainly where I am now is all about flexible working. And yes. But this was, when was this? It, this would have been, my children, it would have been 2010, 11. People weren't doing um, and, you know, back then flexible working was like people just thought you were skiving off kind of thing. Yes. Like that's all completely changed now. But anyway, that was my big lesson from Brian Pollard that, you know, if you're the right per- person for the role, people make things work for you. And in the end, there wasn't that much that really needed to be made work for me. I mean. Well, there's a little actually, shout out to Brian Pollard here. So yeah, yeah, thank yeah. you. Thank you, Brian. May you keep doing that yes. for many, many people, assuming he's still doing that. I don't know. <laughs> Brian is um very, very formative in my career. Um, so yes, then I moved into that head of technology role, um, and then all changes happened, and um, a whole lot of data, data technology responsibilities came into my space. Um, I don't know, and then it kind of just my role got bigger and bigger, and then eventually I was moved into like moved up another level, and 
on the on NAB's technology leadership team. Um, yeah, ended up being the looking like a divisional CIO for all of the kind of not the customer, nothing like customer facing, but all of that internal right. tech. Um, and then not all of the internal tech, a lot of the internal tech. And then um, and then kind of stopped for a moment and thought, I've been at NAB for a really long time. I'm going to stay here forever or I'm going to go do something else. Mm. And um, it seemed like a good time to go do something else. So it took me a while to work out what that would be. Um, but in the in the end, I remember I'd been over to the US and interviewed for a CIO role over there. I'd been over to London and looked at a digital leadership role in a big bank over there. And then I ended up taking a job at AGL, AGL Energy, mm-hmm. which meant I moved from 700 Burke Street to 699 Burke Street. So oh. I looked all over the world and ended up moving over the road. So I have to ask you on that then, Dale, because this is a really, this is a question I get asked a lot. How did you make that decision? It's a big decision. Yeah, what, were you, what, what went through your head as you were trying to, I mean, clearly the proximity was hugely attractive, but what else? <laughs> no, I just had to turn left instead of right. That was actually got that wrong quite a few times. But um, so I am a person that kind of gets caught a bit in the wonder. Like I kind of like, I could do anything. Mm-hmm. Not, not you know, literally anything, but like it was, it was kind of like I was willing to think about anything, and then, then it kind of comes down to a process of elimination. Like, mm-hmm. were there industries that I just didn't want to work in? Were there organisations that I just didn't want to work for? I actually remember calling Pip Marlow, um, who at the time was still at Microsoft, and little did I know she'd already, she was about to be announced that she was moving from Microsoft to SunCorp after twenty something years at Microsoft, yes. and I was like. I was um, calling Pip as a mentor going, how do you make a decision about which or where you're going to go in this? And she gave me all of this advice and then two weeks later it's announced in the press. I'm like, mm. I knew Pip. She clearly thought about it herself. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was like timely advice. Um, anyway, it was like, you know, have a look at the, at the you know, ASX list. Have a look at which companies are on there that you really do want to work through. Mm-hmm. If one of them called, would you, like, which, like, actually think about how you would target it. Um, and so for me, when AGL came along, what was super interesting to me at the time was that they, so one, it's an energy company and energy is in this massive transition period. It's like everyone knows where we're going to end up with through energy transition and renewables, mm. but how we get there is really hard. <laughs> and, um, and a lot of that can, you know, technology is going to play a really big role in that. And so that was interesting to me. Like it's a really big problem, climate change and emissions and everything else. You, you know, I could sit back and say that's um, I really care about that um, or I could insert myself in the middle of that problem and see mm-hmm. what role I could play. Um, also at AGL at the time they were doing a huge amount of digital transformation, digital transformation for their customer, digital transformation for all of their employees and being part of that because everyone talks about digital transformation, they were, re- they were really, really in there doing it mm-hmm. um, and I got to lead the internal digital transformation was was a really interesting space to be for me. So it was about m- making that decision in the end was about what challenge I was taking on. Absolutely. Not just what role it was going to be. Um and the other part was looking at not what not like being considerate of not just what that that role is going to be. So in that role, I always need to be challenged. My mum will tell you all the way back to my school reports. If I'm not being challenged, then I get really annoying. So you know, I, I need to be challenged. So in that role is challenged. But then where does that lead? Like where else could I go from that role? And for me, it was. You know, it was it was a digital transformation program. There was a lot of SAP and Workday and those kind of um, enterprise systems in there, um, but it was in a whole new industry. Mm. And so I was going to step into something that was going to be interesting and challenging, but it was going to open up more opportunities for me beyond that because I'd transitioned from financial services to the energy industry. Absolutely. So, Learning how to learning a new industry and how to tr- transition between the two gave me a skill set that I could take next. So for me, the navigating that decision was the immediate challenge in the role I was stepping into, and then where does that take me next? Amazing. Now, before we go into where you are today, I got asked a question the other day, and I mean, you've you've 
walked this path. So I really need to ask you the question. So it was from a young um, but very dynamic and ambitious female leader in the IT space, actually in the energy industry. And the question was, should I stay in IT and move into leadership in this stream? Should I shift across to the operational side of the business or should I try and move more into the strategic area? Um, awesome question because it's one that you kind of face all the time, right? I remember applying for a um, scholarship with Chief Executive Women to go do some leadership training course once and the, and the, the question I was asked was, um, how are you ever going to remove the stigma of being from technology? <laughs> I was like, "You mean stigma?" <laughs> but anyway, that it was a, it was, it was kind of a, kind of a good question. Uh, you know, technology is infiltrating everything these days. So I don't know. I think that it's not stigma rather than a badge of honor these days. Not a divide, exactly. Um, yeah, but it, but it's a really interesting question. So because I've considered that as well. Like if, if, if I am. If I am going to, like, if I'm not, I'm not, but if I was aiming for a CEO position, then I certainly need to have more than just technology, even technology leadership and strategy and everything else in my, in my kit bag, right? So if, if you know, if as a CEO, you, you need to have, you know, all sorts of experience in all sorts of different parts of the organisation. But if you, if you're going for, if you really want to go after. Uh, you know, more and more leadership roles, and you certainly need to have more than just your technology expertise in, 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 in line. So you do need to think about how do you bring in strategy, how do you bring in operations, business management, all of those um, other kind of things. So um, there's two things that I, I'd advise. One is to start looking at your role as if you are managing a business on your own. Mm. So you know, you 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 probably have to manage some sort of, sort of financials. You have to manage some sort of people. There's some sort of risk involved. There's customers and stakeholders and other people that you, other people that you need to work with. There's you know some kind of product you produce or output that you give that has some kind of metrics of success on. How you run all of that as a like if you think about all of that holistically, then um, rather than a task that you have to do here and there, then you can start thinking about a business. Like if you think about, like I'm sure if people go and look up a, a lean startup and they've got, you know, that lean startup plan on a page that's yes. got your, your purpose and, you know, it's got a whole lot of little metricsy thing going on, it, you know, any role that you do, you could probably map to that somehow and it kind of gives you a framework to think about your role as if you're running a business. So you start to get that broader leadership thinking in the role that you have today mm. um, and then the other part is to really connect to the organization's strategy so all organizations have some kind of high level vision and some kind of strategy that going after and the things that they measure their success on in that year how do you connect what you do to that mm. and so that really then then if you're running your little shop as a business then how does your little shop as a business really drive or play a role in that strategy. And sometimes people can't see it. It's not really obvious, but that's where your strategic thinking comes into play and your business mind, other than just your kind of tech leadership, comes into play to say, no, if we don't do this, if we don't do this in my team, then that bit isn't going to be successful. Like if we don't keep the technology systems running, then the operations team can't do their job and that team can't do their job. And I love else. that. I always say to people to make sure that you're really clear about how what you do, do connects through to the strategic objectives of the organisation. And so I love that. Dale, where, so let's move to, because from, from you then moved on from AGL after a certain period of time, um, chasing the next challenge or what was going on there? So I moved to Telstra. Mm -hmm. So Telstra is a nice, a nice big organisation doing all sorts of things for all sorts of people. Um, so Telstra was really interesting to me because um, it's another really big organisation. Like I, I never stopped to think that it turns out I really like working in big complex organisations and they're not for everyone, but I actually, I do really love it. Um, so Telstra was super interesting. Um, it feels, and the role that I got in Telstra um, was, you know, big, big senior leadership, senior technology leadership role. Um, it also had components in it that I had never done before. So there was bits that I had, there was data and there was, 
you know, um, kind of corporate technology systems, but there was also infrastructure and, you know, I had, I was had ownership of a couple of the big goals about migration to public cloud and, you know, I participated in those things before, but never actually owned them. Um, and then data and AI was in there as well. And, um, and so, yeah, there was things in there that I'd, and there was other parts that were really specific to telco um, that I'd just never done before. So there was enough of a big challenge, enough familiarity in things that I'd done and then new things that I was going to learn along the way. Um, and yet another industry to move from energy then into telco. Okay. So, um, so yeah, that was fun. I did that role for 18 months and then Telstra decided to um, pull out data and AI as a dedicated function, really going after almost preempting all of the craziness that's been around AI in the last nine months. Yes. Um, um, yeah, so it's 1st of December last year, which was when ChatGPT was launched as well, that it was uh, data and AI was split out as a as a new function. And so I head up that function, data and AI executive at Telstra. And I've been riding the crazy wave of all of the exciting things about AI um, that I think has gone crazy because it's much more tangible to people now. People, yes. It's not like the black box of the dark art and you have to have data scientists and data engineers make it. You still do, but, you know, mm. in, in a different way, but it's much more tangible for people to be able to see how they'll be able to use it. So lots more opportunities coming. But at the same time, there was a bunch of data breaches in Australia last year and so people were much more worried about the data that we hold at the same time. So I kind of ride the crazy wave between super... Um, protective of all of the data that we have and what and you know you know the, our risk tolerance levels across the whole industry have changed in the last year and then super excited about all of the opportunities that are out there at the same time and and not so much balancing them down to doing nothing being paralyzed but actually trying to navigate that let me take a brief pause from listening to the podcast for a minute just to check in and see if the conversation's inspiring any new thoughts or any new reflections for you. I hear so often from people in our audience, largely successful and senior professional women, how much they are craving some inspiration into their lives. I would just love to share with you, if you're looking for some, then come and sign up for our Sunday Inspiration email series. You can find a link in the show notes at the end of the show. Now let's get back to the podcast. So I love almost when you first talked about your move to Telstra, you talked about and then data and AIs. It was a very tiny little part in it. And, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, here we are now with... Um, you know, I would say two of the most high-profile uh, critical sort of functions for any business to wrap their head around. I mean, I know sitting at the board table, the conversations that we have around cybersecurity and the risks and all those sorts of things, I mean, it is top, particularly after the incidents last year. It was already high profile, but it's, you know, it's off the charts post that. And then AI as an opportunity, which I've got to ask you, um, I was I did a small radio segment this morning and one of the questions was talking about intergenerational divides and it was talking about technology and the technology divide. I'd love your perspective on this because there's a lot of our listeners who, uh, when I talk about being intentional in our career, because this space of technology and AI and you know all of these things is moving so quickly, I think to be an effective leader, we can't have our head in the sand when it comes to understanding, you know, the the possibilities of AI. I can't even get the words out, but the possibilities around data and AI. Tell me how you help your colleagues and executives, or what do you recommend to people? Like, how do people get their heads around this, Dale? I, um, you know, it's funny. I, one of one of uh, people that I've worked with for a long time um, was being interviewed. Uh, a little while ago about AI and one of the questions was, is AI really happening? And she was like, what? <laughs> yeah, hello. <laughs> um, so how I think I think the thing, um, I think the really easy way to think about what AI is, is AI is just, it's like, it's just, it's statistics. It's predict, it's, you know, statistics and predictions based on really, really large data sets and compute power that can process things that humans just can't. Yeah. Um, so, you know, ChatGPT is really just next, you know, like your predictive text, but at, 
nth nth level right I so, use that, right I, I dig in and I use that because I'm curious and I want to see how these things work and I mean I'm yeah. blown away and you know my husband's a teacher and I said to him well give me a subject you want to talk about and I'll write I mean he was blown away with what know, that's amazing isn't it yeah it, but, it, but a lot so of people think are scared of it yeah so it's about it, it's about the um explainability right like how is your AI making decisions so a lot of people at the moment AI is used everywhere already right generative AI which is chat GPT is is the next kind of mm. layer of um awesomeness but anyway um but but AI is used a lot today already because it is it is it is processing lots and lots of data to come out with insights to say um you know like if you've ever been on some website and they come up with your next best offer or on Netflix where it can it says here's the next we, we recommend this show or Amazon where it's like people like you are buying this book kind of thing all of that is looking at all sorts of data to come up with something that's going to be relevant to you um, and so it is just how does it come up with that? Mm. And you know, well, it doesn't sound it doesn't sound too intrusive to just make you, hey, this 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 thing this thing here might interest you. You were looking at airfares, and now here's a hotel you might be interested in. But um, when it comes down to actually making the like a you know in a business process, and it's actually going to make a decision on something that's going to like in the next step of the process like a kind of it's it's combining that automation of processes with additional data and insights to make that next step um at the moment there's quite a lot of humans in the loop of those things that kind of are involved but as soon as you step away from that we really need to make sure that we're watching that explainability so that we can explain how that decision was made yeah. and what I think we, I feel like we sometimes hold that um, the AI or the technology or the automated kind of decision to a holder higher account than we hold the human because humans can't always explain why they made a decision. Um, but that's what we're really going. Uh, that's what we, when, when I think about responsible AI and AI ethics and how do we back up the, the you know, what the, what, what the AI might be doing, it's that explainability of, the, you know how it's making that those decisions I think is the bit to, the bit to keep uncovering is that explainability is the is the thing that we need to keep an eye on is there a simple one or two things you think all executives should do to be able to be part of the conversation I think it is there are some really um so two things I would say one is like just do a bit of research to understand what's going on behind your screens. So you don't have to be a data scientist or a computer scientist to really understand what, what's happening. But just, I mean, I would say that to anyone, actually. So it's the same for cybersecurity. Like, just do a little bit of research to understand a little bit about what's going on behind, behind the screens and behind what you're seeing. And then for business executives, I'd say there's two things. One is being that really conscious of protecting the data and what choices we're making about how we're using our data and are we okay with, um, you know, like consent from customers and privacy and stuff like that. Australian federal government has um, published responsible AI principles, Telstra, NAB, um, I think Microsoft and other big companies were involved in formulating those. So those AI principles are available for anyone to see in thinking about fairness and trust and so have a look at those in terms of just being aware of ethics and responsibility. Mm. Um, and then on the other side is think of AI not then, like everything I've just said is about it being technology, but if you think of AI as not being a technology thing, AI is only of value when the insight that you get from the AI is actioned. That's the only way you get to the benefit from AI. Yes. So if you, if you know your business and you know the things that matter if you're going after productivity or you're going after being able to direct differentiate yourself in the market or a better customer experience or whatever that might be, then deeply understanding your business strategy, which clearly business leaders would know, and then understanding what is possible with AI and how you might pull that into, into those business goals that you have. Because uh, AI people like me are just going to be making AI available to you all yes. the time. Yes. That I am not the business strategist, <laughs> but yeah. I need to, like, we need to come together to be able to pull that, that, 
use of AI into the business strategies, not just bang a bit of AI on the side of a existing process, but reimagine, okay, AI exists now and it's real. What would I do differently in the way I design this product or the way I design this digital experience? Um, because it's real and it's there and it's available and um, I'm following all the ethics principles and that's possible. So I don't know, be confident in knowing your business strategy, knowing a little bit about AI and then how you pull that through and make it make it make the two things come together. So let's change tack then and get back into your career. Would you call out like what would you call out as maybe the hardest moment in your career? Um I reckon um the hardest moments are always where it's quite often when there's a big period of change. It's actually quite when you're like changing roles, right? And so I know I went from 700 Burp Street to 699, but that very first job I had where I went from Ballarat to Sydney, um, that was like I was super scared in that moment. Like I was excited but really scared at the same time. Um, then, you know, my first ever overseas assignment, I was mm. terrified. Mm. I actually delayed going because I was so terrified of actually going. Um and then, you know, all of those, all of those roles, though, every time I've taken one of those risky kind of, like slightly risky kind of steps and, you know, put put myself in those uncomfortable moments have always been the ones that have super paid off. Like going to Sydney, moving out, moving away from Ballarat, going to Sydney, starting working with technology, totally set my career. Mm-hmm. Going to um, then, you know, going overseas, uh, working on all of those programs in, you know, across Hong Kong and Germany and Sweden, um, next level of making my career kind of thing. So I think that stepping into it, the hardest parts for me have been, I don't know, maybe because I'm super safety conscious, but um, um, don't really like risk taking, but actually know that taking a risk is super rewarding. So that stepping into that, into those uncomfortable moments have been, hard and then um and then really rewarding i did do this big leadership program at nab once which was um kind of broke broke down into what you know what 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 you stood for as a leader mm-hmm. and then build it build it back up again and that was super hard that i don't know there's only so much time you can delve into self-awareness and reflection and um um, but that was super hard. But that, that was also another area that actually the 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 effort and discomfort really paid off at the end in that as well. So, what did you learn about yourself as you went through that? In that in that particular program, yes. I learned. So it was actually about risk taking, right? So in the end, I learned that when I step into so so say I at the time I had just stepped into NAB's technology leadership team, mm. and I what I learned was the way that the way that I was acting and performing that role was how I thought you were supposed to perform as a technology leadership link mm-hmm. Um and and in those and in that, you know, trying to protect myself in those moments, then I became much more controlling, I became much more demanding, became that really directive leader, which isn't naturally me. I am the opposite of that naturally. Yeah. But in those moments where I'm taking that risk, my default position is to protect, is kind of to protect myself. And then I perform my leadership role in a really unnatural way for me and a way that no one was receiving particularly well. And so I kind of realised that I just got this big promotion that um, was kind of my dream job at the time and I was just being abysmal at it. And so then it was like, how do I correct that? How do I, one, let go of the, what well, like the need to try to control things um, and let go of that and create a different relationship with all of the people that worked with me and, um, yeah, for, so from now on, it's like, all right, if I'm going to step into a brand new space and I'm kind of, you know, my default position is to go be this crazy leader. So let's not do that. Let's be really conscious of it from the start and get to my really authentic, much more empowering, engaging kind of self as a leader. Yeah. And I've become heaps more, kind of, like, I, that, that is now my natural position. But back then, 12-ish years ago, it was um, it was not. So, yeah, big it's learning. So, it's so interesting to hear you say that because, I see that time and time again with a lot of female leaders 
Um, I see, and, and I should say, male and female leaders making that step into leadership from kind of individual contributor into what you think a leader should be, right? There's some really pervasive archetypes around what leaders should be. But the thing I see with a lot of female leaders is I think it stops them putting their hand forward for leadership roles because it's like, I, I don't want to lead that way. Um, you know, and also looking up, I hear this a lot and I'd love your perspective on it. You know, I hear a lot of female leaders talk about they see people in senior roles, very senior roles, who don't have a life. Mm. You know, it's it's 24-7, it's all sorts of different things. Tell me about that. So that goes back to that job application I had where I said, I don't have 24-7 available to this job. Yes. Uh, I remember um, I remember once getting a piece of advice that was to walk slower in you know, when back when everyone was in the office all the time, but to walk slower between meeting rooms. Yeah. People are looking at you all the time as you are the senior leader. Yes. You have no time to stop and say hello to someone. You have no time to stop and make a cup of tea in the kitchen. Um, then they see your role as rushing, working lots and lots of hours, rushing from here to there. Um, and then that's what they think the job is. Mm. And so many leaders also never talk about, I'm leaving early today to go pick up my child from school because they don't want, you know, they don't want people to know that. I do think things have changed on that now. But it was that. So so I remember once we did this, it was a fire evacuation drill. Um, we're all standing out around the cow in the tree at Docklands because that was our evacuation point. And I was talking to someone and we were talking about how much sleep you get. And they said, you must get no sleep at all, Dale. And I'm like, no, I sleep eight hours a night. Like I need my sleep. It's super important to me. Um, and that was in, it was kind of then that I went, oh, that don't walk, like slow down when you walk and that actually talk to people about what happens outside of work. So if, if I am, um, if I am a senior leader and people look to me as that is an example of what leadership is and do I aspire to that role, then I need to, I, there's a, then there's a responsibility on me to be able to, and if I want to encourage people to like, you know, grow in their careers, then there's the responsibility on me to talk about what it means for my whole life, not just what it means in that. Yes. That, that thing. So in, in, so my professional career. So I had to get a whole, in that moment, I had to, from then on, get a whole lot more comfortable with talking about, um, what happens at home, what happens, you know, like walking the dog and um, dealing with my children and when one, you know, if one child is having a great time at school and one time's having a child, like just talk to people about that. Yeah. So yesterday I was in calls, we were making some big decisions and it was also parent-teacher interviews, which mm -hmm. I've kind of always avoided for the last couple of years anyway because they always tell me exactly the same thing, um, and which technically they did tell me yesterday as well. But it was my son's in year 11 now and, like, it's actually – you know, we're not just gliding on through anymore. So um, I was hanging up from calls, going and doing the parent-teacher interview, coming back in again. So, but telling people that's what I was doing. So I think it's that, um, it really is that, you know, if, if in that moment where you recognise that you are, that like the shadow that you cast as a leader isn't just what you do in your leadership, in your leadership in your day job, it's, it's bigger than that. And um, I, I've always said to people, like in, in my job now, I work, I don't work any harder than I did when I was, you know, just starting. Well, I do work harder than when I first started out, but when I got, then when I was serious about my career, let's yes. say that, which was probably quite a few years into my career. But anyway, I don't work any harder now than when I was, you know, working in, in, um, in Sweden in that, uh, in that SAP implementation job, for example. But, yeah. um, but I work differently and because the job is different. And it's all about, you know, I'm not just working on one project and have one big thing to deliver. It's context switching every moment. And a lot more time is spent in meetings and talking with other people and helping other people get their things done rather than doing it myself. So um, it's a different job, but I don't work any harder or, or really any longer hours than I did before. So yeah. what's the um, what's the hardest piece of feedback you've ever had to hear? Oh, God, so much. So feedback is... Um, feedback. I remember um, Diane Smith-Gander speaking at an event once and talking about feedback and she was like, you need to treat it like a Christmas present. Sometimes you open those presents and they're beautiful and you love them and you hold on to them dearly and other ones you like put aside to re-gift at some time later. Um, so I think, we, so feedback for me, I like feedback, no one ever give, no one, I mean, I, you never remember the positive feedback. I, 
it's, it's always a negative feedback that sticks sticks with you. It's why it gets a bad um, name. <laughs> exactly. Um, the the. The, so the, the thing with feedback for me is that what I try to hold on to is if people have given me feedback, and I've had feedback before, I've gone, oh, that's just bullshit. You just don't even know who I am. Yeah. You're not paying attention to what I'm doing. But um, and so, but so, or arguing with the feedback that they give you at the same time. Like I think I, I've kind of I've learned to let go of doing that mm-hmm. and to actually just sit with it for a little while. Mm-hmm. And, and and work out in that feedback, if I disagree with it, there's still something in there. There's still going to be something in there because they've seen something. And it might be, you know, because feedback quite often comes with advice on how to go about fixing it. So maybe it was the advice about how to fix it that is something that I would never do. But there's still something in that bit of feedback that I have to think about and work out how to address in my own way. Exactly. So, yeah, when I get – I can't pick it, I can't think of one piece of feedback that's been hard, but – um because it always is but it's that like sitting with it for a while and not just learning not to just respond in the moment but to go curious something in here that if I peel back some of the things that and find the bit like do I I find the bit that is probably the most uncomfortable in it is probably the bit that I have to address do you go and Um, ask finding my way to address it do you ask for it no, I avoid it. No, <laughs> avoid it. Not, not, no, no, I do. No, no, no. Our, um, I, uh, I, you know what? It's one of those things that it's so uncomfortable because you always get. I don't know. I've I've had some amazing bosses and amazing people, mentors and everything, and they, and they, um, and it's a fit like it's a feedback that you get from them that is. I mean, they're amazing because they give you this great feedback. And in the moment, you're like, mm. like it's really uncomfortable. Um, but actually, it's all, there's always this, there's always something in there that you that you need to address. So, you know, yeah. Dale, I do, I do, I do, I do ask for feedback. Good. But I just, I ask for it with my hands gripped on the arms of my chair, just because I know it's always going to be. Well, loosen that grip, right? Because there's a lot of research that says if you go and ask for the feedback, you're much more likely to take it on board and do something about it. I had this wonderful, and I'll never forget it. it there's a new term. It was not new. It's been around for a while, but it's feed forward, not feed back. So it's like when you're giving someone feedback, it's like paint the picture of the future opportunity. And I had a great piece of feedback when I was stepping into the CEO role from someone who knew me well and knew how impatient I am. And they said, when you get into the role, you're going to look around and you're going to see hundreds of things that you want to fix. Choose one or two because you'll kill everyone if you try and do it all at the same time. And it was yeah. the most beautiful way of basically saying you're an impatient, yeah, you're an impatient pain in the ass. Don't kill everyone um, as you try and do it. So um Dale, you and I could talk for a really long time. We might have to do parts two, three, and four um, of the podcast because there's so much to cover. But I will ask you the final question that I ask everybody, which is, from your perspective, what does the term brave feminine leadership mean and do you think it needs to change? No, I love the term brave feminine leadership. I um, I love the embracing of... Um, femininity so if you think about when I said you know my hardest leadership moments were those bits when I wasn't being authentically me mm-hmm. and I don't know that I'm particularly feminine but I just I think I do think that there is absolutely a place for feminine leadership um, I think that um, for it being brave is you know I said before that you know the times where I've taken a risk has really helped has paid off for me. <laughs> so I think the um so I think those those being brave, um, embracing your authentic self and stepping into those leadership moments, I think is I think is awesome. Like I love it. Mm. Well, thank you for being an incredible, brave feminine leader and such a role model. Um, I know you take that I know you take being a role model very seriously and very intentionally. And I know I said that was the last question, but really I do have one more. Do you think, you know, I talk about wanting people to be intentional in their career. Have you been intentional in your career? How would you call it? I would say that early in my career I I kind of went to where interesting roles came up, and I think a lot of people would say that. Um, I think, though, that 
when I, I got a piece of advice once, which, which was that looking for not what your next role is going to be, but where it's going to take you. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean, oh, I'm going to do this job and then this job and then this job. But it's like, okay, if I do this job, what opportunities does it open up? And so kind of playing, like having that in mind when I've gone into different roles, I think I have also, you know, like recognising and I didn't recognise it exactly at the moment, but remember, like, right at the start, I said I just fell in love with that idea of people and technology coming together. Yeah. Recognising, you know, when I had a choice of going um, away from technology and doing a kind of more operational role, it was like, oh, wait, I do love technology. I want to move away from technology. So um, really understanding that that intersection of people and technology was a place that I was like really, I was really passionate about it and exploring it and, and, and enabling it more and more. So um, the the being intentional in my career has been always always thinking then about that purpose and knowing that if I'm not I'm I'm not um, working in something that I'm passionate about then I'm not going to be not really going to show up that well um, and then thinking about when as I do this role like what other opportunities are going to open up after that so yeah in that in, intentional in that in that sense Dale. Thank you for adding your voice to the conversation. Part two will kick off with why you're not focused on the CEO role. Because <laughs> I'm having too much fun with data and AI. That's why. <laughs> um, thank you again. Thanks, Melissa. And that was the end of another podcast conversation. So thank you so much for listening to the episode today. I often hear from leaders who felt inspired by the conversations and are ready to put themselves first. And so I wanted to take a brief moment just to share how I've helped hundreds of women just like you become crystal clear on the exact steps they should be following right now to lead an intentional and sustainable life without second-guessing themselves so that they can maximise their influence influence and impact. I've put some details into the show notes and there's a link there where you can find out some more about our signature Elevate and Influence program. While you're there, take the time to sign up for our Sunday inspiration email series. Have a brilliant day.